Welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by our new sponsor for the Oil & Gas Onshore podcast. A big shout out to Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of the oil and gas industry. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. Well, here we are again. For all the listeners out there, we had a pretty good technical difficulty. I somehow failed to book the room because we had to reschedule the podcast. I think I was traveling to Midland and Stephen graciously, you know, shuffled his busy schedule around to accommodate me. And I, you know, didn't do very well by booking a room at the Canon. Here we are at the Canon. For any of those who've been on my podcast, you know, we typically go into, I think it's the Lone Star Room, which evidently someone had booked. So we got about five minutes into a pretty solid episode, I say, and a kind gentleman was at the window waving and couldn't get our attention or at least mine. And then he came in and said, I have this booked right now. So we basically carried the studio into another room and booked it up. And here we are. And one of the plugins didn't work. So my computer was about to die or the Zoom recorder was about to die. But we magically found another plugin, and now we have the power. We've got the room booked, and now we're set up for success. Are we not, Steven? We are ready to go. We got it. <laughs> okay. It was an adventure, but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. we made it here. I mean, it, you know, in hindsight, it wasn't that bad. But typically, I, I like to be a little bit more professional and dialed in with these types of situations. But today's just one of those days. But I feel like sometimes when you get through the storm, the rest is easy breezy. So there we go. This is going to be a great episode. And so for everyone out there, welcome to this week's episode. I'm here at the can in here in Houston with Stephen Forrester, content development manager at Gyrodata and contributing writer at OGGN and IEDC. And again, it's something that we'd covered in the first part of the episode that we won't air because we got cut off. It took a long time to get you on the podcast. And something I admire about Stephen is he's such a selfless person. He's always looking to help others. He's provided me a ton of great guests to come on the show. So I thank you for that. And me being, you know, just maybe a lack of self-awareness, I didn't even think to ask him to come on my podcast. And so he actually said, hey, I don't want to ask, but I'm going to ask, can I come on your podcast? Because I feel like it's my turn. And so, you know, (laughs) thank you so much for for putting that out there. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. And I'm just excited to be able to have you in the mic because I feel like you have such an interesting story. You're very big on people, like I said, helping others. You do some fantastic writing, which we can get into as to you know how you got into that, your role within OGGN, and obviously your day job, which I'm sure keeps you extremely busy at Gyro Data. We'll get into all of that good stuff. But before we get going, I do like I want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our lovely sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the well pad operations. 
TechNip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about all the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn. That's where all the cool kids hang out. So anyway, Stephen, how are you doing this lovely, what is it, Tuesday morning? It is Tuesday. How's the week been so far? The week has been great so far. Yeah. All's well for me. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Good, good. You know, we kind of got talking a little bit about this, and this will probably air sometimes in May. And so, you know, by that point, hopefully the the COVID numbers come down and India is taking a pretty big hit right now. But here in Texas, things are looking pretty good. Are you back at the office or what does that look like right now? Yeah, we're back at the office, at least partially. So we're on a staggered schedule. So part of the team is on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. The other part is on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah. And then you work from, you know, work from home, work remotely the other two days. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And as we're coming out of this, I think finding, you know, again, the new norm was everyone work from home and make it work, figure it out, adapt, which is what we do great in oil and gas. But now it's going to be, okay, what are the expectations? Should we be in the office all the time? Do we need to be in the office all the time? Should we be there a few days a week? Should we not? So, you know, management and HR, I think, have a pretty big hurdle to get over here to see how things are going to shake out and and just really to keep people happy. I think a lot of companies did a great job, especially in oil and gas, to you know, allow people to work from home, which they obviously had no choice, but really just giving them the flexibility. But it's all about, to me, keeping people happy. You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, supportive data out there, or at least research that says, you know, a lot of people, depending, you know, what generation you are, would would rather have a good work-life balance, flexibility over just a ton of money where you work your, you know, tail off from, you know, being at the office from, you know, 7.30 in the morning till five at night. And, but anyway, that's a whole nother topic of discussion, but I'm glad to hear things are opening up. I was talking to a fellow coworker this morning. We actually, for another podcast and the Astros, you know, they've got fans in the stands and it was funny. He was telling me that, you know, he went and, you know, there's sections that are socially distanced and that, but then as the game, you know, kind of goes on, people like to jump into better seats. And so next thing you know, they're all slammed up against, (laughs) you know, as close as they can get to the field. And it's like, wait, that doesn't make sense, but (laughs) still 50% capacity. So it's fine. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, there was a there's a little bar I would go to and I would laugh because back when the capacity constraints were, you know, more in place and it was 50%, they have like a back patio. So there's, you know, a central area and a front patio and a back patio. And they would close that back patio, you know, put a lock on the door, shut the thing down. I remember asking them when they were going to open it up and they said they didn't know and I found out that it was because they were including that patio in the capacity number, mm. but then they shut it down so they could actually fit more people into the front <laughs> patio in the in the main area. And it was just, okay, you know, yeah. it's a little creative solution here, you know, I, no I had to laugh. Now it's open fine, but. Yeah, no, there's a, there's always a little bit of hacking going on yeah. involved to, I mean, for, <laughs> for the survival of the business, you know, you got to get creative sometimes. You got to do what you got to do. Yeah. yeah. You know, speaking of businesses, you know, I mean, airlines seem to be picking up. I've traveled quite a bit between you know, Midland, Denver, Oklahoma City over the last couple of months. And yeah, you say the word COVID in Midland and they think of it as like, you know, the Spanish flu. They're like, wait, when was that again? Oh, yeah. yeah. Last year, right? Sometime. And it's like, yeah, it's still going on. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, everyone there, you know, bless Midland's heart. They've done well. And yeah, there's not too much masks wear- mask wearing going on over there. But hey, again, it- it's teach your own. I'm not dogmatic either way. But I guess ultimately, it's just it's nice to see that some folks in, in parts of the country are thinking of COVID as a thing in the past. Yeah. And hopefully the rest of the country can be on that wavelength here shortly. Yeah. And with the vaccinations you know, yeah. accelerating, I mean, I'm, you know, I've got both of mine. And well, which ones I- did you do? 
Pfizer. Pfizer. Okay. Yep. That's the one that doesn't make you feel like you're on your deathbed, I, right? I, I felt like a million bucks. Okay. I mean, <laughs> I've heard stories. My, my arm was sore, but that, that was really about it. Yeah. And I, I've heard varying things from a friend of mine. She actually got, she got Moderna, but yeah, she got chills and fever and she was out for two days after she got her a second shot. And yeah, I was great. I think I was actually possibly out out having a drink the night <laughs> the night after i got mine so right well yeah. i heard that helps so yeah yeah right yeah. always yeah correlation is causation mm-hmm. right Ex- exactly yeah <laughs> well good so i want to kick things off i'm very interested because you do have you're into the writing you're into creating content you're very active on linkedin for 2021 how are you innovating this year whether that's in business marketing technology or even just personal branding and, and reputation? Like what kind of comes to mind when you think, okay, this year it's time to innovate. It's time to set myself apart. What does that look like for you? I mean, for me personally, my thing has been telling these stories of people and I've tried to find various outlets to do that over the past few years, even going back to NOV and with some limited success. And so this year was really, you know, how can I move that to the next step? So that was part of, you know, the great pleasure I've had of joining OGGN and having an outlet for for these stories and certainly trying to network more and kind of build up my own brand as someone who is doing this and someone mm-hmm. who's worth talking to so that when I'm reaching out to speak to people, especially if it's you know more of like a cold call type thing where I'm just, they have no idea who I am and, yeah. but that they want to engage with me somehow. You know, they've maybe seen me on LinkedIn or whatever floating around. And, you know, actually, it's funny because there was a there was a company that OGGN works with and they had reached out to Mark and said, hey, we saw a post that, you know, Stephen put up about something for something I did with SPE for the way ahead, which is their digital magazine for young professionals. Hmm. And I had got an article contributed from this guy, Francois Laborier, who's the CEO of uh, Cognite Americas or the president of Cognite Americas. Yeah. And so they'd reached out and said, we saw that who's this guy? You have like a writer over there or whatever? Like, how do we, you know, how do we get a piece of the pie? And so it's starting to work, right? And do you prefer dollar bills or Benjamin? Yeah. I mean, because cash <laughs> yeah. is all, is king. So. Yeah, look, it's just, you know, <laughs> let, let, keep keep the keep the money flowing, boys. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. all I'm asking for. We'll, yeah. we'll figure it out later. But, yeah. Right. No, but that's interesting because, you know, again, and, and it's, I think that speaks to the truth of building I like to replace the word brand for reputation. You know, Mm -hmm. you build a reputation for someone as a professional who perhaps is an expert in a certain field who just kind of basically does great work. And on top of that, has a good network and this and that. And it's crazy the opportunities that come along with it. But, you know, the world over the past year, and like you said, now you're kind of getting into that mode. Like, okay, like I want to be known as the writer. That's something I'm passionate about and I'm going to explore it and seek opportunities. And if they come my way, I'm going to take it. But, you know, again, the world we live in now has certainly changed in many different elements. What's something that surprised you over the last year since the beginning of COVID? Is anything kind of coming out of it made you sit back and realize, you know, for for all the chaos we went through, there's kind of some breakthrough in something that otherwise we may have not been able to experience. Does anything come to mind? I mean, the primary thing and kind of as we're talking about was, you know, a fundamental change in mentality around work habits and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, working styles and things like that, even hours of work to where not just necessarily remote work or, you know, I want to, I want to stay at home five days a week, but also how people work and, you know, what do they do? And, you know, for me, for example, you know, we probably talked about this, but I'm a night person. I'm active at night, like 8am, 
just forget about it. You know, you're not, yeah. you're not getting the best work out of me. Yeah. Either. I had you come in for a podcast that you're sitting in on it some, or no, it was online actually. And, and yeah, I think it was like seven 30 and you could tell you were not really, you didn't want to get out of bed that morning. It's brutal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not a morning person, <laughs> it was you funny. know, and, but so with remote work, a lot of times I might, you know, get up at eight instead of six 30 to drive to the office. And then yeah. I might sign off at four or something, but you'd see me online at 10, 11 midnight. That's when I just feel creative and kind of active and I start getting ideas and I want to write and that's just kind of how it works for me. So, yeah. you know, recognizing the freedom to not chain you to a desk or an office or whatever for, you know, a full eight hour day and saying, Hey, maybe, yeah, it is better. That this person works at 11 PM right? if they can produce great results, right? All that matter, all that should matter is the product. It's the result. It's what's coming out of, you know, it's what's coming out of it at the end. It is. And actually to speak on that, I read a book probably a couple of years ago called the power of when I believe, and it speaks specifically on there's four main categories of people that follow certain circadian rhythms. And what that is, is like, it's like, you know, most people refer to it as your biological clock. Mm -hmm. And so between like hormones and DNA and different things, you know, some people, again, basically saying some people work good at night. Some people work good in the mornings. Some people are, you know, perform best from two to six in the afternoon. Some people perform best from five to nine in the morning. And so, but like leveraging people's basically how they operate, I think is fascinating. And to assume that everyone produces the best work from a certain time period within the daylight hours is just obscure. And so I agree. I think that's something that people are recognizing and it's hard for people to let go of that control, right? Like we talked before, you know, you get say a boss who works for a company and and is familiar with, you know, knowing where their people are at certain times of the day. And they know they take a lunch from, you know, 11 to 12 and they know their break is from this to this, but otherwise you, if you want to find them, you know exactly where to go. Well, guess what? Your phone's attached to your hip 24 seven. So they're not hiding very far, even if they're not at the office. Yeah. It requires just a whole you know, re-examination of that and even, you know, peak work hours and kind of peak creativity and things like that to where nobody is working at optimal, you know, efficiency for any given length of time that's, you know, six, eight hours, whatever. Most human beings are, you know, you have two hours of a creative burst or a lot of energy and that's where you accomplish something. And then there's probably, you know, a lull. And I I feel like that's how people work. At least that's how, certainly how I work. Yeah. It's kind of like after lunch, for example, I come back, I'm full. I'm like, I got my sweet tea. I just had my Chipotle. It's like, <laughs> I'm not going to produce my best work right then. You know, yes. I, I'm, I'm like in a whole different mood. It just, yeah. so you have to understand how people function. And I think doing that has, you know, kind of changed how, how we're working. And I, I was just talking with my boss about this actually yesterday and, you know, GM put out a big announcement for their employees and they said, work appropriately is the new mantra, right? Work appropriately. So Hmm. yeah, if you're in the auto, you know, if you're on the auto line, yeah, you're going to be there five days a week. Right. But maybe if you're in their marketing department, maybe you're never in an office again. Yeah. And they basically are divesting responsibility from kind of the corporate level and putting that in the hands of individual managers to say, manage your teams and let them work appropriately. Yeah. And this is a company with 155,000 people, right? So that begs the question, well, why can't a company with a thousand people or 10,000 or whatever, you know, why can't everybody kind of, kind of follow suit and figure out, you know, what, what does this look like for their employee base? Yeah, it is challenging, but really what I like to also kind of bring back is nothing can replace the human element of interacting. I think Frank Miller and I spoke about it 
in my last episode, he's the you know, founder and CEO of Navigation Petroleum, but he's big on flow state. And he told us a very interesting story about when him, and I think it was his reservoir engineer got together and they had, they were in a room talking about different areas and different, you know, whether it was well spacing or subsurface stuff, whatever that was, again, I, I forget, but they went in there, started chatting it up and then hours and hours were have went on and they were talking and they were in the zone and they had a whiteboard. And then afterwards, they kind of like realized they're like, wow, I don't think we've taken a break from what we were doing. We lost track of time. They looked at the whiteboard and it was like, you know, just like genius Picasso <laughs> reservoir stuff all over the walls. And, yeah. you know, but I mean, you can do no, that you can't, Yeah, you definitely can't substitute for in-person interaction and especially, you know, with people that are in tune like that. Yeah. So, yeah, if I'm if I'm just in an, you know, in an office building or I'm in a conference room with, you know, a random person it's not going to change anything. But yeah, when you have people kind of going back to, you know, with rapport and reputation and people that, you know, you understand and that you can work with and bounce ideas off of and and collaborate and whatnot. Yeah. Then you're definitely going to get your best results, you know, in person. I I agree. And so that, that all ties into that flexibility, right? So yeah, if I want to go anywhere and do something with someone in real life, yeah, let's do it. You know, as long as it's, it's that flexibility of, when does it make sense to do that? And when does it make sense not to some, cause yeah. some things can definitely be done over zoom or teams or whatever, yeah. or, or email. They don't even need a call. It's just, Hey, provide me something. Right. I need bullet points about something. Yeah. We, you know, we don't need to see each other to do that. Yeah. So no, that's exactly right. So I want to switch gears a little bit and just to kind of maybe give some context as to, to who you are. Where are you originally from? Houston, Texas or Bel Air, Texas specifically. Okay. We're, we're our own little city. So, you know, very proud of that. And, you know. How would you compare and contrast Bel Air to the rest of the city? Like, is there something unique about Bel Air that maybe maybe people not know about? Or? You know, Bel Air back in the day, I mean, long before I was even considered or, you know, thought of when my parents were younger. Yeah. Bel Air was called the city of homes. Interesting. Because it was just you know, residential, that was it. Okay. And lots of, you know, new families moving in and whatnot. I mean, my dad, he would laugh about when 610 didn't exist by the house and (laughs) there was no freeway, you know, and how, oh, we had to clear this thing and build this freeway. I'd say now, I mean, you know, Bel Air is like, it's like West University or Southside or any of kind of these very small cities within Houston, you know, inside the loop and you know, fairly affluent, you know, good schools, they're becoming kind of more diverse. And, but Bel Air was kind of always old school. You know, it's only very recently that like more restaurants and new centers and kind of things to attract younger people have popped up. Yeah. I always thought of it as, you know, more for fairly wealthy people to kind of move into and lots of, you know, what we would jokingly call McMansions where (laughs) they bulldoze the little one story, you know, my parents had a one story house that my dad bought from my grandma in the early seventies. So, you know, growing up, I was living in a house that was 50, 50 years old and they bulldoze a lot of those houses and they build these three story giants on these relatively small lots. So it's kind of comical to where you have this massive thing towering over, you know, the house next to it, but yeah. there's no yard. Right. And it, so that's kind of been the thing, but I, I loved huh. it. I always loved having what I felt like was my little city yeah. because we have our own post office. So Bel Air actually gets its own zip code. Oh, so really? even, so even though like West university Southside, like even though they're, they have a police department, for example, everyone has their own individual police department, but Bel Air has a post office. So it has its own zip code seven, seven, four, zero one. So I was kind of like, 
that's kind of cool. You know, I, I want to live here one day. Yeah. I, I don't, I haven't, haven't figured out how, you know, okay. <laughs> I got to buy a townhouse, but you know, that was always kind of the dream. So no kidding. Yeah. Is it expensive to get in there now? It depends. I mean, it's mostly, so if you buy like a, you know, an older house or like a one story house or something, you're largely paying for the property of uh, value, the lot value. Mm. I mean, you'll see them selling empty lots for three, $400,000. Yeah. So you think of, well, I could go out to Katie or Sugarland or wherever and I can hell you can buy a two-story 3,500 square foot house for you know 200 grand right so it starts getting very expensive and yeah when you start talking about two stories in Bel Air you're talking you know six seven eight hundred thousand plus so wow. for a single dude a uh, single writer guy you know it's it's a drop that, in the bucket the, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah how did you know us writers or so but um, <laughs> but there's lots of like townhouses and you know smaller properties things like that that are feasible for even you know normal kind of working working folks so it just it all depends what you want so yeah. for me yeah if I can get a 12 1400 square foot townhouse you know, spend 280, 300 grand, like let's do it. You know, yeah. but you got to find the right one first. You got to find places that haven't flooded. Mm. So it's fun. You know? Yeah. That certainly <laughs> adds another aspect to it is finding places that haven't flooded in the, you know, within the city of Houston. But so, I mean, you've obviously mentioned writing. Is that something that, so, cause backing up even further, you know, you grew up in Houston. Did you move away or did you grow up and go to college? Cause you went to U of H, right? I went to U of H. I'm a homebody. I'm an only child. Okay. Super close to my family. You know, family's everything to me. And cool. so, yeah, I, I never had any desire to leave. I will never go or live anywhere else. You know, it was just always, I want to be here. I want to be with my family and friends. Everything I love and cherish is here. And Hey, I'm good with that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I grew up, you know, born in Calgary, Alberta. When I was five, I moved to Vernon, British Columbia, 18, moved to Alberta, 23 or something like that, moved to Pennsylvania. So I enjoy the adventure of traveling and moving and just getting to know new people. But it's interesting because I always think back of like, if I would have stayed in my hometown, like there's so many people that I know growing up that are still there that it has kind of that interesting homely feel. And so I'll never know what that's like because I've moved so many times, but especially in Houston, I mean, yeah, I, I can't see, like, unless like from a climate perspective or if someone who's like, I, I need mountains or I need, you know, freshwater lakes. But if, if you're, like you said, if you love and cherish everything that you have and it's here, yeah, I just think it's neat from people who have grown in a place and lived in there and who just continue to know this is home. I'm planting my flag and I'm not yeah. going anywhere. Just, I always kind of wonder, like, I wonder what that's like. I like it. You know, and I know there's jokes about like, oh, the kid that never left his hometown type stuff, but yeah, for me, this was just where I wanted to be. And, you know, I mean, I, the way I kind of built out my friendships and, and people that I'm very close to, they're people I've known for pretty much my whole life. Yeah. So like my closest friends, you know, I've known for 25 years and there's not, there are not many left. I mean, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. This isn't a huge list or anything. It, sure. it thins as people, they do move away Yeah. or, you know, they get married and have kids and they have new responsibilities and they can't go out drinking on Friday anymore. So I mean, yeah. no, uh, I know. Th things, yeah. <laughs> so, so things change, but yeah, most of them I've known for most of my life with a few kind of, you know, one of my best friends I met at my first job. So known cool. him eight years and, but yeah. And then a lot of other stuff on the periphery. But yeah. the closest, you know, real people is met them in elementary school and we're still friends, even if they've went somewhere else. Yeah, so. no kidding. So yeah. speaking of school, you went to school and you you actually studied like English literature or you remind, but it, it was something within the literature realm, right? Yeah, my well, my undergrad, I majored in, in English and I minored in education, thought I was going to be a teacher. And then when I ended up not, not wanting to be a teacher or not pursuing that path. And then I did my master's in, in English literature. 
with a focus on British romanticism. Wow. So, so explain, because that's very interesting and unique. And then you go into oil and gas, which now you're doing writing. So it kind of ties together. But what made you decide that? And, and where did the passion of writing come from? Did it sort of, did you have an epiphany as you were, you know, growing up or were you always into writing? Like, because I think that's really interesting. I was always a reader and a writer. I, I was, you know, I was consuming books voraciously, you know, as early as, as middle school. I mean, you probably read more books by the time you were eight than I've read my entire life. So like, <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I loved reading and it's funny because I read, I read fewer books now and, you know, my dad will always make fun of me and say, you know, you, you don't read anymore. And it's like, yeah, but I read so much, you know, I've, I've read things that people never heard of. And yeah, I mean, but yeah, starting in sixth grade, there was a program called Accelerated Reader back then. And you would, you would read a book, you take a test, you get points afterwards based on how many questions you got right. Oh. And so everybody was reading, you know, the easy stuff, you get your 10 points or whatever, and you go on. And, but I was really competitive. And so I, I was reading like Les Mis, you know, by Vic, Victor Hugo, Les Miserables and uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame and stuff like that, like wor world literature, because Les Mis was worth 125 points. So I was like, man, I got to get my 125 points, you know? And it was funny. I had this competition going with this one guy and I just had, I really wanted to beat him and I ended up losing. I got second player. I got second place, but yeah, he won because he took the opposite approach and he just read like, you know, a bunch of he books was just all about volume. and just boom, 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 boom. We go through them. Right. And then, and the thing was, these were difficult novels. So, I mean, when I got to the test on Lim is, I wasn't getting 125 points. That's if you get every question right. Yeah. So it's like, oh God, you know, this thing's 1200 pages. I don't remember. Oh I, my, my, my brain doesn't remember. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm what, 11 years old. So that's crazy but, though. But, so you read that whole entire book yeah. at 11 years old. Yeah, good Holy times, smokes. good times. And I mean, then I went back and reread it later so that I, because I mean, honestly, how much did I actually comprehend or take, take with me was probably limited, but yeah. Yeah. So I guess it started very young and I loved reading. I loved writing going through middle school and high school. I, you know, I kind of thought, I don't really know what I'm going to do with this, but mm. this is, I, that's just what I was good at. You know, I liberal arts basically yeah, math and science. I knew it would just never be my thing. And so it was like, do you want to, do you want to go to college and maybe do like a business degree or you know, engineering or something and, and, and pass with C's and D's or whatever to try and get a job that makes, you know, ostensibly a lot of money or do you just want to do what you love? Yeah, I chose the latter path and, Good for you, you know, and, and so I went into college and studied English and I, I was in honors in my undergrad. So we had some kind of cool deviations and, you know, I experimented a little, I took psychology and, you know, I took, I took law, I took some constitutional law classes, which I, I think I passed as a courtesy move from my <laughs> professor, you know, so that was when I knew I was not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. that, that was bad. And it was funny. I went into the final for that class and the professor said, this is so, it's going to make me look so stupid, but so he said, you can print a single piece of paper, eight and a half by 11 paper or whatever, front and back with as much text as you want and bring it to the final. And so you, you might, you know, so you'll have the answer. You might have the answers to the questions. You don't know what the questions are, but you can print all the stuff. And so it was basically based on court cases. So I swear, oh. I, so I swear to God, I deleted the boundaries, you know, the margins of the page. Oh yeah. And I put every single court case that we'd studied that year or that semester or whatever onto this paper in like size one font. Yeah. So I went in with this paper and I had a magnify, I took a magnifying glass and this piece of paper, 
I mean, just how, <laughs> how stupid can you be? And no, I, that... So I thought I had it all, right? I thought I'm like, I got a hundred on this thing, but then it was so hard to read oh, no. and so hard to find the individual <laughs> cases. And I hadn't really done anything else. And so it was just an exercise. It was just, fu- it was totally futile. And yeah, and I'm pretty sure I failed, but then at the end I got like a, you know, I got a flat 70. So I, hey. I think, I think he just took pity on me. Great guy though. The professor <laughs> was like a very renowned constitutional law professor okay. uh, named Robert Carp. Wow. Well, he probably gave you an A for effort on the cheat sheet. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty impressive. But yeah. <laughs> and then, then with the education thing, you know, I, I was doing that and I, I student taught for a semester and, you know, I love the kids and I loved it. I was at Bel Air. So I went back to my alma mater, my high school my mentor had been my teacher in 10th grade. The home, the whole homebody thing is, you know, coming full circle. Yeah. I loved it, but it didn't align with the reality of, of education in the world, right? I mean, I had AP 10th grade English and all these kids were getting hundreds and they're little geniuses and they loved it, right? But that's not the general populace. And so right. when I left, my earlier placements were in very low performing urban schools the first one was actually on the very fringe of HISD. It was about 40 miles from, from where I lived. And the fail rate was like 60%. Mm. And they didn't, you know, I don't know what happens now, but back then, you know, first year teachers, kind of young teachers, fresh out of college, you don't go to these high-end schools or high-performing schools like Bel Air and DeBakey and Lamar and stuff like that, HSPBA. You go to a, you know, a mid tier or, or low performing school and you push a cart around, you're what they call a floater. Cause you don't have your own classroom yet. And you push yeah. your cart around. And I think the logic is they're thinking that you're passionate about this. And so you're going to try and drive real change or some kind of, you know, major change or impact. Yeah. I wasn't that way. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to betray the nobility of teaching because I really respect it. Yes. And I have, you know, I have immense respect for, for teachers and for the entire profession. Yeah. You know, woefully underappreciated. Right. Yeah. And so I didn't want to be that guy. It's like, well, I have an English degree, so I guess I'll just go teach because I don't know what to do with this. I did. I wanted to teach because I wanted to teach. I wanted to feel called to do it, and I wasn't called to do it. And so hmm. went and got the master's, and you know, read a bunch of British Romanticism, which is you know, a lot of poetry and you know, a lot of other stuff. I mean, I did some rhetoric and composition. I did some American lit and you know, British lit and. French postmodernism and, you know, wow, all sorts of fun stuff. And yeah, as I was going through that, some of the leadership or, you know, whatever, you know, the higher up professors, you know, I was, cause I was debating if I should get a PhD or not. Dr. Steven has a ring to it. It did. I, you know, I wanted to be a doctor. I, it was so silly. I mean, and I, or I wanted to have a PhD and just slap it after my name. And yeah. <laughs> I think purely from a you know, like I can do it type thing. I mean, it didn't really matter. It definitely wouldn't have mattered now, right? A PhD in English and oil and gas is not going <laughs> to do wonders for you. It's cool, but it's not going to, I'm not yeah. going to get job A or B. And so, yeah. And, and after some discussions and, and all that, but as a master's candidate, you were very pushed to go into a PhD. It was kind of like everybody just assumed you would either do a PhD or you would go teach. That was it. Like, so they're like, Hey, are you going to be a teacher or are you going to go get your PhD after this. And I was like, what if I don't want to do either of those things? Yeah. And what if I want to drill wells, at least I want to write about people drilling wells, you know? (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) so one of my professors was very supportive of that. His name was James Pipkin. And he was my kind of one of my mentors, British romanticism professor, you know, just an amazing guy. And he was one of the people who said like, don't follow that path, like go do something else, do what you want to do. And I just wanted to get into technical industry and 
my dad had been in oil and gas since I was a child. And so I kind of had like, you know, a peripheral fascination with it. I thought it was cool. And then back then there was all the idea of, oh, oil and gas, you know, you make money and it's this cool career and yeah. there's all this cool stuff and technology and blah, blah, blah. And so it just all kind of fit. And that's where I wanted yeah. to be. And I'd been waiting tables since I was 15. So I'd been doing that a long time. And okay. yeah, then I got my first gig as a contract writer or a contract, you know, technical editor for Lloyd's Register. And the, the rest is history. Yeah, and no kidding. So tell us now what, what you're currently doing for, for writing. Because I know, or actually, you know, OGGN, this is obviously you know, Oil and Gas on Shore, OGGN. It was not too long ago that Mark LeCour brought you on board. So how did you get into that role? Or how did they seek you out to say, hey, we need a writer? Well, you know, I, I had met Mark many years ago at actually at one of NOV's shrimp boil events. Yeah. You know, they did the big shrimp boil. Everybody loves that, you know, go and get your free beer and, yeah. you know, hang out with sales guys and drink your free beer and get your free food, you know, <laughs> yeah. life's good. But I met him there when they were kind of testing out Facebook Live for, for NOV. And, you know, we connected and we, we didn't really ever know each other very much, but, you know, stay, stayed together on LinkedIn, whatever. And he saw an article I had written. I had actually written it while I was NOV and then I quit when I went to Gyrodata. And there was some content I'd produced that I didn't know what to do with. And then I, then I left. And so it never saw the light of day. And one of them was on this, you know, amazing woman named Vicky Corso, who was a subsea engineer for Chevron and did some stuff with, you know, wellheads for FMC and Anadarko and all, you know, all sorts of stuff. And mm. just a, just a really pioneering figure in that space. And so I'd written a, an article on her and I didn't publish it in OV. I had nothing, I didn't know what to do with it, but it was, it was great. You know, I really want to tell her story, especially because I'd kind of promised these people I'm going to tell your story, you know? Yeah. So I found a home for it in this magazine called Marine Log, thankfully. And they published a slightly edited version of it. There were some some more colorful bits that were redacted, unfortunately. Okay. But they published it and I put that on LinkedIn and Mark saw it. And he was kind of said something effective. Do you like doing this? Like, is this, you know, do, is this your thing? Because all, all my professional writing is largely like technical stuff, you know, especially business related. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to validate performance, provide proof of performance, you know, sell something, help a sales team sell something by saying, here's a case study or, yeah, you know, visibility. Here's an article in World Oil or whatever. So he said, this is like not that. What is this? Like, is this, do you like doing this stuff? You know, is this you? And I was basically like, this is, this is actually fundamentally me. Yeah. You know, I have to do what I have to do to make my salary and like get a paycheck. But this is, this is what I'm all about. Like, this is what I studied and this is more creative writing and stuff. Heck yeah. That was when he brought me on. We had this idea to kind of, you know, support the organization by finding these individuals who are doing the various podcasts and part of the community and, you know, interviewing them after the fact. I always say interviewing and it's, it's not really true. It's really just like having a conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't have like a Q and a or script or anything. I just, we just get on a zoom call and I'm like, the floor is yours. Tell me your story. I want to know. You can start from the day you were born. You can start from college. Like, you know, I don't care. Yeah. And then they'll just go on, we'll record it and then I'll write something up and try and provide some insight into these things that are not often talked about Yeah, because we're so focused on technical and business related stuff. Yeah. So like we were talking about earlier, you know, I want to talk about the guy who's an underwater photographer and diver, not about how he's an offshore engineer there, yeah. you know, that stuff's it's out there already, but right. how do we capture the cool stories or, you know, like me, who you interviewed, you know, the guy yeah. who all the stuff he's doing or Scott Gale, who everybody, you know, knows from Halberton labs, but did you know that he was a missionary in Brazil or yes. that, that kind of stuff? I'm like, I want to find these little nuggets these little golden pieces that these people don't talk about because they're not, they feel no, 
reason to talk about it, right? Yeah. It's not like it's doing anything for them. Yeah. And I've had multiple folks just say, you know, I've never told anybody this. There's actually a story going to come out tomorrow on Olu. Olu, I'm going to butcher his last name, but Olu Olajide, who hosts the Energy Talk podcast. So, you know, I when we talk to him or when I talk to him and you know, he's talking about he's born in a, a hospital by candlelight because there's no power and how that kind of, wow. you know, informed his worldview around energy access and things like that. Yes. But it's just like, yeah, this is what I want. You know, mm. this is what I want people to hear. And everybody I tell about that, they're like, oh, my God, are you are you kidding me? And I'm like, no, this is the guy. This is his story. And he actually admitted on the call, he said, I don't think I've ever told this story before. No way. I don't really talk about this. And it's like, so how many people do we have that have these awesome stories to tell or these awesome things about themselves that are kind of obscured or in the background? And yeah. we need that desperately as an industry. Well, everyone has one. That's the very interesting part about it is, is no one has the same story and everyone's story is so unique to who they are. And a lot of the the reason as to who they are and why they are the way they are. I think it's neat that you're kind of unfolding a lot of that. Have you ever considered doing like a podcast on you telling people stories? Because I think that'd be super cool. You know, I haven't. If, OGGN, if, if, I was untold say, stories. If, there you go. If, if Mark is listening right now, hey, you know, let's do it. That would be so cool. They don't even just like quick 15 minute episodes of like today's episode is, folk, you know, spotlight is whatever. Like you said, the gentleman you're talking about from Energy Talk and yeah, if people come across like, you know, I've never heard his story and, you know, they can just yeah. listen in. So Yeah, give a little short kind of shout out. And yeah, no, I'm Maybe neat. I'm on board. I mean, I and I love that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, we we as an industry need to focus more on that. Right. I mean, because we're so good at telling the technical stuff and the business stuff and, you know, the ESG and the investors and the performance and, yeah. you know, that stuff. Yeah, we, we we're doing that till the cows come home. Right. I mean, and, and at varying degrees of quality, uh, but, right. yeah. but you know, all this other stuff and we need to humanize and bring this back home. Right. Especially with kind of overall general perception being negative. And so how do we humanize the industry? How do we show people no, like this guy that works here is just like you, right? It's yeah. just another person that has something, you know, they have a family or they have kids and they do this and that. And you know what I found so far and what I, what I really like is just a lot of humility around around these around stories yeah you know, i was just talking to sean wong he's a co-founder of this company called matador yesterday or earlier this week and writing a story on him and you know he was like i was telling him about something else he said yeah i don't really think my story is like that interesting and then we had this hour phone call and it was like everything you're telling me is is gold you yeah. know like <laughs> you're in vancouver and you had a startup idea and then you moved to shanghai for a china accelerator program and then you moved back to vancouver with another startup idea and co-founded this company with this guy and then you were on tech crunch and south by southwest it was like what what about what? this what about this isn't the most amazing thing That's, you know you know what funny people in that can appreciate the humbleness but that is amazing. Like no one else can say, that. oh yeah, I've heard that story before. I, yeah, I did that. Yeah. Like, no one, not that I know of. And that, that goes back to what we're talking about is like, I want to help people tell that, you know, and I don't need anything in return for that. It's just, you know, man, like let's take a billboard out, like blast this to the world. You know, yeah. we, people need to hear this. And if I can like help you, you know, if I can be the catalyst for that, whether it's me writing it or if I can you know, connect you with somebody or I can find, you know, a place for you to tell that story yourself or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. I, you know, I don't need, I don't need any fame or fortune from it. Like that's, sure. I just want to see other people fly. I mean, you yeah, know, I want, yeah. I want to see you, you know, flap your wings and soar. I mean, yeah. And if it's good for me, that's fine. That's great. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm certainly not averse to that, but 
we need to prop each other up. I mean, I think that's super important. Big time. Nowadays and, and really always, right? Yeah. Have you always had that mindset of helping others and being such a selfless individual? Because that's, I mean, to me, that's something that is very unique. Most people are what's in it for me, right? That's typical. So I mean, how, where does that come from? I don't know. And I'm, I'm not perfect. I mean, I certainly, you know, I certainly do things for me and, you know, I think about myself, but I don't know, a lot of it, I don't know, maybe it comes back to my parents and my upbringing and in some ways, maybe, you know, faith or kind of, you know, my, just my general beliefs. I mean, there's probably a lot of aspects to it, but hmm. I don't know. I, I think it really, and I mean, I don't, you know, when I was a kid, I, I'm sure I wasn't, you know, necessarily that way as much or whatever, but I think a lot of it manifested in, you know, realizing what you can do. And so like for me, especially early in my kind of, you know, oil and gas career was I'm not an engineer, I'm not a physicist or whatever. Like I'm not going to be out in the field or, you know, help you drill a hole or, you know, help you plan your well bore or whatever. Right. Like that's, I can never do that. So how can I participate in this industry in a way that I hope is meaningful Yeah. and I, without somebody being, you know, like, Oh, it's just the marketing overhead and you know, stupid stuff like that. How can I legitimately contribute to the industry, even if it's not revenue generation, but sure. you know, what, what do I have to offer? And, so you know, cool. I certainly have to offer what I have to offer, but then I thought, if I know people and, or if I have connections and, you know, how can I help put the pieces of the puzzle together? And it really started out with close friends, yeah. like with knee, right? Like, you know, and, and helping knee write some things back in the day at NOV and stuff. And, and these relationships just blossomed into where it's like, you start learning about somebody and it's like, I just want them to, yeah, I want them to succeed. Mm, no, I'm fine. Right. I'm, I'm doing okay. And you know, but I want them to do more. So I'd submit, submit somebody for an award. Yeah. You know, like I submitted Andrew Coit, I was trying to get him on the show and poor guy's got a kid now and back and forth between Saudi and here. And he's, you know, he's knee deep, but you know, I submitted him for award for SPE and like, then he won it and stuff. And there was nice. nothing in this for me. Actually, I think I nominated you for, yeah. for this same thing this year, but you oh, know, so like so there, cool. there's nothing in it for me, but I just, because I think people deserve, you know, they deserve a chance to shine. And yeah. if I can play a part in that, Hell yeah, let's do it. You know? Wow. No, that's amazing. That's a very contagious attitude and mindset to have. And like you said, you know, part of it could be your upbringing. And so, yeah, I think, you know, growing up and what parents instill in us and the values certainly resonate and, you know, for the rest of your life. And so that's just really neat to see that because you don't see it very often. I know OGGN, we're, you know, super fortunate to have you part of the team and you do other writing as well, right? And, and what other organizations are you a part of? And then obviously, you know, you have a day job too, which, yeah. you know, you can explain a little <laughs> bit about that because, you know, certainly that's certain dimension. So, yeah. So this, you know, this year, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, yeah, 2020 was actually a really good year for me. And I'm kind of like, I'm kind of, you know, not really keen to say that because it was such a bad year for everybody. And, sure, yeah. but I was kind of like, Hey, I'm, I'm actually in the same boat, like 2020 and early 2021 just were transformational. And so, yeah, I started the OGGN thing really kind of came on in late last year, but then it really started, you know, things started getting published this year. And then IDC has a magazine or international association of drilling contractors has a magazine called drilling contractor that I've written stuff for professionally for years through the companies I've worked for. And I know the editor very well, you know, and just an incredible, incredibly talented editor and publisher named Linda Shea. And she had kind of reached out and said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm short on staff. Do you know anybody that is looking for a job? And I was like, well, I mean, I think the short answer is no, but the long answer is like, 
what, what about you? You know, what about your buddy over here? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I kind of weaseled myself in, you know, and, and suggested that, that, hey, if you need a contributing writer from time to time and you have something you want covered, you know the quality of my work. We've worked together a long time and you know that, you know, I, I've worked at different companies. I have a decent amount of connections and know people and I'm not shy about asking for things and blah, blah, yeah. blah. And it just worked out. So I started writing for them. So I had an article and in the last issue. And then I have three shorter pieces in the issue coming up. So just kind of pumping out some stuff for them. And hmm. yeah, then my day job, you know, with Gyro Data is more on the technical and business side, like we, like we talked about. And so, you know, what we're doing is precision wellbore placement, you know, wellbore surveys with, with gyro tools or, or with, you know, gyro well drilling or GWD stuff. And really trying to differentiate that as, you know, why this is better than anything else, both other technology and competitor technology yeah, and just really put these successes out there to the world and make sure it's visible what we're doing and how we do it. And, you know, what, because then there's that question, why isn't there, you know, reservoir placement should always matter. Right. So why isn't there gyro in every well? Oh, well it's cost. Oh, well it's this. Oh, well it's that. Well, we're eliminating all these barriers. So, you know, what's the struggle now? And you know, it's just like, well, if we keep knocking on the door and you know, working with operators and working with other service companies to try and help them understand we're going to be more successful. So that's been my big thing is writing, you know, articles in magazines and case studies and things like that. And even getting involved with other media, like with podcasting. And so, yeah. you know, trying to get our folks featured on podcasts all over the place and not, not just to talk about the company, but just for a culture building thing and to, to feel good about themselves and that you matter. And, yeah, there's, you know, a sales guy in Midland who's never had a spotlight, you know, shined on him. So it's like, well, Prista's doing the Permian perspective, like go on there, tell your story, you know, and th and that's, well, what do I talk about with Jar Data? Uh, no, I don't, no, that's fine. You know, yeah, you say you work for Jar Data and you're in business development or whatever, but then who are you? You know, who, who's this person? So yeah. just tried to get involved with podcasting as a medium as well as a, as a communications tool and been, you know, overwhelmingly successful, you know, around resounding success and really got me interested in the platform too, right? And in the media type, because I was not really a podcast listener. I'd always people would say, what podcast do you listen to? And it'd be like, I listen to music while I'm in the car, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm jamming. Like, yeah, yeah. I've got what kind of music do you listen to? usually heavy metal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you said that hesitantly, like, that's okay. Yeah, people, I know you headbang yeah, people, and all the rest People of it. have a, you know, they, I think they think weird things about that or something. And I'm Why? like, I don't know, I, you know, but it's just got a weird connotation. People are like, oh, heavy metal, you know, but. So, but like, is it the heavy metal that's like. And like you like can't death, like it. death metal. No, I'm there's not. There's a difference, right? Yeah, Between yeah. There, well, there's all. I mean, I guess if I, you know, there's so many subcategories. I've been listening to metal for a long time. I mean, so I'll listen to a lot of different subgenres. I mean, whether it's new wave, a British heavy metal, or like old stuff like Maiden and things like that, or, yeah. or you know, or if it's Sabbath or thrash like Metallica or Slayer or something, or you know, all sorts of different uh, industrial stuff. I mean, stuff from other countries. I have a few channels on YouTube that I just, I just follow. And nice. this guy just puts up new stuff like day after day after day. And these, these like very obscure bands just send him okay. random. They just send him their stuff. Cause they're like, we're never going <laughs> to, we're never going to make any money. You know, we're not going to sell any CDs. So we might as well just put this online and try and get interest that way. Yeah. What and is, then what fans see what CDs. Yeah. That like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I had to think about that. Yeah. 
You can't I you, just say that. You go into Best Buy and you, you see, you know, you see like one little row of that stuff, right? Yeah. That's so awesome. I, don't, I haven't heard anyone say CDs in so long. I was talking yep. about VHS tapes with my wife the other night and it was like we were talking about going into Blockbuster back in the day and like making a full experience of yeah. it. You know what I mean? And say, it's the same thing. You went into, I don't know what the CD stores are called down here, but back home in Canada, there was... Oh gosh, now I forget. But you know, you'd go in and you'd look at the, you know, the CD covers and see which ones look cool. And oh, and get the you get the song titles, and so you know. And yeah. I mean, I remember as a kid going into you know Best Buy, or we used to have a store called Fye where you could you could actually go and then they had like headphones, yeah, and so you, you could, could you could pick a CD and you could scan the barcode and it would let you play the song, so you could oh. listen to it beforehand, which is awesome for finding new music, right? And yeah, and I mean, then they'd have row after row after row after row of cds as far as the eye could see and now you go into best buy and it's like a you know it's a hodgepodge collection of like you know justin bieber greatest hits <laughs> a few rap albums and it's yeah. just like so you're, you're never gonna find what i'm listening to at a best buy but uh That's so funny. it's changed so dramatically with digital music oh, and stuff so, hasn't it which no, is fine because i mean as much as i like to support the artists that i love i mean a lot of times I'm making a playlist on YouTube. Like, yeah, it's free. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but it is what it, it is. You know, but artists now realize there's the, the way they're going to make money is different than and it's how it used to be. It's probably with shows and touring and things like that. It is. You know, you're not yeah. going to sell, you're not going to go quadruple platinum and sell, you know, a bajillion CDs anymore or Blu-rays or whatever, right? You, right? you need to probably get some level of fame and then tour. And if you're an obscure metal band, you're doing this, you know, you're never going to be rich, right? I mean, you yeah. didn't, you didn't do it to get rich. You did it because you love the music and you have a passion yeah. for it. So what's the number one heavy metal album of all time? Oh gosh. I don't know. I'd have to think, I'd have to think about it. When you think heavy metal and something, if you just had one CD to play, if you had one CD left in the entire world that you could play, which one would it be? It would probably be Rust in Peace, which is a Megadeth album. Okay. Yeah. Megadeth, Rust in uh, Peace. I think it came out in 90, somewhere around there. And that was... So, you know, Dave Mustaine is the singer and guitarist of Megadeth. He was in Metallica okay. and he got, he got booted back in the day. And then he formed Megadeth, which became, you know, a major competitor, super, you know, another big band. Yeah. And Rust in Peace, you know, was coming out around the time that kind of, it was either 88 or 90 or something, but yeah, Metallica with Black Album in 90 was kind of embracing commercialism. And that was like, for me, that was kind of the last like good, you know, great Metallica album. Okay. And then after that, it was like, it was just like falling off a cliff. They were trying to be radio friendly. They were trying to make money. Yeah. Megadeth went the opposite direction, went like super technical and they had, you know, a crazy, you know, they had Mustaine and some other guy on guitar whose name is just, I'm drawing a blank, but very famous guitarist on there as well with all these dueling solos and crazy stuff. And rhythm was just incredible. And I, I used to play guitar when I was a kid. And so- okay. I really liked that kind of music and trying to figure out if I could play it. And I, you know, I was never like phenomenal or anything, but you know, that's interesting. And actually it answered one of the questions I have is what's something unique about yourself that no one knows about. So we touched on that and we're at the top of the hour now. And before we get booted out of the room for the second time today, <laughs> I'm going to have to, you know, say that that's a wrap for today, but Steven, it's been an absolute pleasure. I feel like we kind of just scratched the surface. So I'm going to invite you for a round two. There we go. Instead of you having to knock on my door, which again, I'm slightly embarrassed about, but at the end of the day, I'm just glad you were able to come on. I'm glad that we've built a relationship and you know, have networked and you've introduced me to some great people. So again, appreciate that and appreciate what you do for the industry, writing and doing things that like I said, a lot, a lot of people, you know, are, are capable of doing or have the interest, but it's so important to have a voice for our industry to tell the stories and to bring that human element back to our industry. Because 
you know, it, it's something that I think is missing. And so, yeah. you know, it's great. Is there any sort of, is there a message you'd like to relay, assuming everyone in energy is listening right now, any good closing last thoughts or comments for people? I would just say, I mean, you know, keep on keeping on yeah. as far as, you know, and this is not, you know, my message necessarily, but I mean, we need to be proud of what we do and who we are and what we stand for and, you know, what the work we do, whether it's drilling holes in the ground or supporting that, however, we're providing, you know, abundant energy for mankind to continue to live happy and fulfilled lives. Yeah. Yeah. There's an energy transition going on and there's all these different concerns and this and that. And, but at the end of the day, you know, what we're doing matters and it's important. And I would, you know, tell everybody to you know go to bed happy at night that what you do is, is critical for people to live good lives and don't let, you know, the narrative shift otherwise. Yeah. And the world is changing and there's going to be other renewable and different energy sources and stuff. And I'm on board. Let, let's do it. But let's not bash what's happening right now. And, and the, the millions of people in this business that are literally keeping the lights on for, for families and, and people like you and me. So Amazing. that's my big thing. And, and also yeah. to your point about, you know, what I'm doing, I mean, you're doing the same thing with the podcasting world. So <laughs> yeah. I like that, you know, we're able to hit these different mediums or different content types, you know, me for written stuff. And so people can read the, read the articles. I hope they, <laughs> I hope they can read them or yeah. they, we're splitting them into two parts if they're too long. You know, uh, I know people don't, they don't like, uh, you know, it gets a little dicey. Most people nowadays are headline readers. Get, so you gotta a, be to the point. It gets about 1400 words and it gets a little dicey, you know, and, <laughs> and I'm, and these things are like 3000 words. So you got to split it up. But, uh, but, and then with yourself with, you know, with podcasting and getting interviews yeah. and, and, and telling people stories in the audio format and letting people have the floor and have the mic, you know, if you will, to, to talk about themselves and what they do and what they're passionate about it. You know, it's we're, we're doing good work. So no, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, absolutely. It's, it's fun. And we do it because we love doing it and that's what matters. Awesome. Well, I'd like to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming OGGN events. Hey everybody, it's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for May, 2021. This month we have four events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our online events newsletter. We send it out every month and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. First up, we have our in-person event, which is the 20 YPO's networking mixer at the Houston Club on May 25th. Next, we have our three online events, the Post-Industrial Summit Series from May 4th to June 22nd, the Data Fabric and Data Ops webinar on May 5th, and the Maritime Career Day hosted by Women Offshore on May 21st. Other than these events, OGGN has a live stream this month titled Identifying and Evaluating Advantage Oil Projects on May 5th. So make sure to check that out on our Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com for more information. You can also find more information about that or any of the live streams or events we have coming up also on Facebook, LinkedIn, or OGGN.com. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for May. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. Excellent. Thanks. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. Stephen, thanks again for joining me today. Like I said, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they're interested in, you know, maybe even just asking for or even hiring you or, or if, you know, if that's even available or just simply want to know more about what you're doing, some of the stories you've written about, what's the best way? Yeah, you can, you know, you can definitely contact me on LinkedIn. I, you know, I love connecting with new people. I, I see requests from folks I've never met all the time and I'm, I'm usually apt to accept them and chat, you know. 
You can reach me on my professional email at stephen.forrester at jardata.com. Perfect. You know, and go from there, right? I have yeah. an OGGN email too. If you, <laughs> yeah. I check it less often. I have three laptops in my room. Oh, so, wow. uh, you know, it's like the work one is getting checked the most, but yeah. stephen.forrester at OGGN. If you want to reach out there, maybe you have a specific idea for a story or something like that, feel free to reach yeah. out as well. I, I welcome ideas. They've all been kind of mine so far. Sure. So I'll take your problem with, you know, Hey, send, send stuff my way. I'm I'm happy, happy to, happy to do that. So yeah, I'm extremely grateful for having that. Well, good. And everyone out there, appreciate the support. If you could leave a review, share it with friends, family, other coworkers, that's always the best way to help grow. And always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.